Corals are resilient, I've been told, and so are we. We've survived worse. Just ask your elders, they'll lift their shirts, show you bunker scars, typhoon tent towns, atomic nightmares of lost, irradiated islands. So this is just another incoming tide to shore up against. Hence seawalls, hence foreign aid, hence consultants, terms of references, a framework for asking each other which island will we move to, which island will be hit first, which island is worth salvaging, the wreck, a slow-moving accident, the ultimate disaster. Atollic Oblivion. You've just heard from a resident of the Marshall Islands speaking about the impacts of climate change on Pacific Island nations, which is one of the topics we'll be discussing in today's episode of Climate Talks. The Climate Talks podcast follows the journey to COP26. It's produced by Melbourne Climate Futures and the Melbourne Centre for Cities at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Jackie Peel, and I'm joined by my co-host, Cathy Oak. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast was produced. And for us here at the University of Melbourne, we pay our respects to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and we invite our listeners to take a moment to reflect and acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which you live. Hello listeners, it's Cathy. With our guests today, Jackie and I will be discussing climate adaptation, climate finance, carbon markets and how international frameworks fit together. But first, Jackie, let's talk briefly about the latest on COP26. Yeah, well, really, the the big news to come down recently has been the Working Group 1 report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, and we've just released a special episode on this Working Group report, if you'd like to check it out. It's the report that sets out the physical basis of climate change, providing the scientific input, which is really going to inform the negotiations that are going on at COP26. Yeah, this report is a critical part of keeping the 1.5 degrees target alive at Glasgow. And that's where a lot of our focus is going to be. But what are some of the other big issues that are being raised in the lead up to the COP26 meeting, Cathy? Some of the big issues include scaling up adaptation, mobilising finance, loss and damage, and finalising the Paris rulebook rules on carbon markets. Yeah, and we're also in our region with Pacific Islands uh, front of mind, also thinking about how we're catalyzing adaptation funding in particular. Well, exactly. Loss and damage from climate impacts is also coming up as an issue, and it needs to be recognised really much more so in the lead up to COP26. Yeah, I think we've all seen coming out of North America and Europe recently the images of devastating floods and fires, um, which are increasingly being linked to climate change. And even though we've got this huge agenda at COP26, there are also other issues clearly linked to climate change's causes, consequence and effect that we won't actually see profiled at COP26. Yeah, and a couple of our guests today will speak to these, in particular our oceans, so critical to our Pacific Island neighbours, and biodiversity, which is a fundamental intersecting theme and crisis with climate change. 
Of course, we could go on, Cathy, but let's wrap up our latest on COP26 for today and hear more on some of these points from our guests. Okay, I would like to welcome to Climate Talks Dr. Alexi Trundle, Research Fellow in Sustainable Urban Development at the University of Melbourne, and Associate Professor Stephen Minas, a Professor of Law at Peking University, to provide some brief insights into the key COP26 issues of adaptation, carbon markets, and climate finance. So to start us off, Alexi, can you tell us a bit about how adaptation is being discussed at COP26? Yeah, thanks, Cathy. And I, and I, uh, I know that uh, many of our audience will understand the difference between adaptation and mitigation. But just to quickly emphasise, adaptation, uh, as it's generally framed, is about dealing with the impacts of climate change. And I think probably that's a good starting point for where the conversations at COP26 are going, because critically, uh, we're, as we're seeing currently day to day in terms of the extreme events that we're facing, we're obviously living through a changing climate at present. And so I think one of the first things to note is that increasingly the framing has shifted towards resilience and the use of language like resilience to encompass both climate impacts and broader understandings of disaster risk reduction and management. So you sort of see that in the discussions and how they're being framed, and you'll increasingly see the word resilience popping up in an intersection with adaptation. There are two other sort of key areas that I think is really important to understand. One of them is, is where climate finance sits and financing for adaptation specifically and the commitments to, to raise $100 billion annually to support adaptation efforts. And that's something that hasn't been met by the, particularly the global north and is being emphasised heavily by countries in the global south. Uh, and the other thing to note is that uh, while that sort of transfer of financial assistance to support development efforts uh, around adaptation is, is definitely part of the conversation, uh, there's often a, a bit of a dissonance with methodologies, approaches, technical approaches in particular that are already being deployed in the global north, drawing on much uh, sort of more established infrastructure and sort of Western-centric technical expertise. I think it's really important to, to keep that on the table and to understand the limits of being able to transfer, particularly in heavily developed urban contexts, technologies from one country to another. So while the financial flows are significant, there is sort of a bit of a divergence between technologies that are deployed in the global north and, and those that are emergent from the global south. Stephen, what can you tell us then about the issues relating to carbon markets at COP this year? Well, Cathy, the Paris Agreement established two new market mechanisms, uh, one of them allowing for the transfer of so-called mitigation outcomes between different parties to count against each other's nationally determined contributions, and the other one establishing a new mechanism to encourage investment in um, sustainable development and climate projects in particular countries. The problem is that parties have not yet agreed the detailed rules for how these two mechanisms would work. Uh, there were long texts in draft form at the Madrid meeting in 2019, but without agreement. And of course, then we had the long break in negotiations because of the pandemic. So in uh, Glasgow, parties will be trying to reach agreement on these uh, two new mechanisms. And there are a lot of outstanding questions, uh, such as achieving an overall uh, mitigation in global emissions, environmental integrity, the human rights of projects, uh, also how the adaptation fund will be funded. So there's a lot on the table uh, for negotiators in Glasgow. And what are the differences between or for developed countries and developing countries when it comes to carbon markets? Well, under the Paris Agreement, these mechanisms are a bit different to their predecessors under the Kyoto Protocol, because of course, 
under Kyoto, only developed parties had uh, mitigation targets. Now, of course, under Paris, every country nominates its mitigation target in its NDC. So with these new mechanisms, uh, developing countries also have the ability, uh, should they wish, uh, to use carbon credits for the achievement of their own NDCs. Uh, now, of course, developing countries, or many of them, will also be looking to attract investment and perhaps also technology transfer using these mechanisms. And there's a particular challenge currently because of the end of the second commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol, uh, which means there's a gap in international activity under the clean development mechanism. So it's quite important to get these rules in place. And in terms of the overall finance goal at COP26, how are negotiations progressing at the moment? So the finance negotiations have progressed rather slowly. There is, as has been mentioned, a lot of controversy over the $100 billion target, the target of annually providing $100 billion from developed countries to support developing countries in climate action. Uh, and there's, there's a great urgency, of course, for all developed parties uh, to provide climate finance consistent with that goal. But at Glasgow, a new discussion will begin on identifying a post-2025 global uh, quantitative climate finance target, which, of course, is expected to be more than $100 billion. And that is uh, the discussion that will begin at Glasgow. But as I said, it will begin in a context of uh, significant dissatisfaction with the progress towards the existing $100 billion target. Thanks, Stephen. Circling back to you, Alexi, on adaptation and the discussions at COP26, what's your assessment of whether they're capturing the issues of most concern, especially for our Pacific neighbours and, you know, around issues around sea level rise and, and others? Yeah, thanks, Cathy. Yeah, I, I think um, what's quite interesting is that as a, as a region, the, the Pacific is quite a powerful negotiating block, but within climate negotiations, it, it sort of is, has an elevated status, particularly due to that. It, it's sort of a global awareness of the exposure of Pacific Island countries, particularly the smaller states and the coral atoll states. I'd also note that the, the regional body, the Pacific Islands Forum, has gone through some difficulties over the last six months, particularly with the smaller Micronesian atoll states choosing to withdraw from that due to a sort of a break in protocol locally. So it'll be interesting to see how the region is able to negotiate. I'd note as well that the current chair of the Pacific Islands Forum is Frank Banorama, the, the Fijian Prime Minister, and he's previously chaired the COP itself. So there's sort of a weakness in terms of the regional sort of collective voice, but there's a strength in terms of the negotiation expertise. On the adaptation front, however, I think a lot of the emphasis from Pacific Island countries is squarely centred on the 1.5 degree Celsius target and discussions around uh, accelerating mitigation. So there is sort of a, a hesitance to focus too heavily on adaptation per se because of that urgency to the region uh, in terms of accelerating mitigation efforts. In the background, however, there are a number of sort of peripheral efforts towards adaptation and supporting climate finance more broadly. And I'd note that that is often not specific to adaptation or mitigation. Some of the largest investments in the region have been very squarely on the mitigation front. Uh, $100, $100 million plus projects in Solomon Islands, for example, are centred on hydropower, not specifically on adaptation. So it's very dependent on which country's engaging and sort of the, the specific needs that they have, but very much reframing adaptation as a key component of security is probably one of the biggest contributions that the region brings. Oh, we could go longer on both or all of these topics, but I have to thank you both now for providing us insights succinctly and eloquently as always. Uh, thank you, Stephen and Alexi, for joining us on Climate Talks. 
I'm going to hand it back over to Jackie now. Thanks, Cathy. I'm here with Margaret Young, Professor of Law, and Brendan Wintle, Professor of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences, both at the University of Melbourne. We're going to be discussing two other big environmental crises for our biodiversity in our oceans. These are issues that are not being covered at COP26, but are subject of other international policy developments. So to start us off, I think it'd be good for our listeners to get a sense of the state of play on these big issues and the development of frameworks in these areas. So Margaret, I might start with you. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the key issues that we're facing in ocean conservation? and how they're being addressed under policy and legal frameworks globally. Thanks, Jackie. I would highlight three main issues, climate change, which your listeners are very familiar with, but also marine pollution and threats to biodiversity. So we have scientific evidence about these issues from the United Nations Second World Ocean Assessment Report released in late 2020, which adds to our knowledge from other international bodies like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So on climate change, we know that the ocean is already warmer, more acidic and less productive, having absorbed over 90% of heat generated by carbon dioxide emissions and 20 to 30% of the carbon dioxide itself. Here in Australia, we see the severity of the impacts, including the ongoing devastation of our Great Barrier Reef, and corals will be at very high risk if global warming is limited to 1.5 degrees even. Second, the ocean faces unprecedented levels of pollution from industry, agriculture, tourism, fisheries and shipping. Even the COVID pandemic has increased the medical hazardous and plastic waste in the ocean. And thirdly, biodiversity is threatened by overfishing and other extractive industries. And there's a push for marine protected areas and reserves. The established legal framework that seeks to govern the oceans is headed by the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, often discussed by the acronym UNCLOS. This treaty divides legal jurisdiction over ocean areas so that coastal states have sovereign rights up to 200 nautical miles from their coastal baselines and the rest are areas beyond national jurisdiction, sometimes called the high seas. What were once considered freedoms of the high seas have evolved to a set of duties of states, including to protect the marine environment and to cooperate with one another. The development of this law often comes from judgments of international tribunals, which are set up under UNCLOS to hear disputes brought by states or to deliver advisory opinions. So lawyers seeking to understand these three threats of climate change, pollution and biodiversity need to be aware of legal processes under UNCLOS, but also other related rules, including the Paris Agreement. Thanks, Margaret. That's really clear. So, I mean, one of the things that we're trying to communicate is that although there's a lot of attention to COP26 at the moment, there's these other big environmental crises and other policy developments to be aware of as well. So, Brendan, turning to you and the context of biodiversity, particularly biodiversity on land, since we've had a little mention of the oceans context, what are some of the landmark policy reports and developments that we should really know about in this area that are trying to address that crisis? 
Thanks, Jackie. Yeah, look, there's been a couple of really important reports over the last couple of years for us to draw on. Uh, in 2019, the Intergovernmental Platform for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services released their global assessment, which is a really amazing uh, scientific effort across thousands of science and policy people globally in the environment. Um, and they, uh, they found some things that I guess we sort of all kind of new, but they, but they were able to articulate them in a particularly compelling way because of the strength of science and policy and social data that they were able to bring together. And so they found that, not surprisingly, uh, biodiversity underpins all people's lives around the planet, but particularly uh, important for uh, Indigenous peoples and peoples living in the developed world. 70% uh, of people uh, across the planet still use wood as their primary uh, source of, of heating and energy. 80% of medicines are still traditional. But of course, nature's ability to provide these gifts to people, those benefits to people is declining. We've seen that 75% uh, of the land area since the 1700s has been dramatically modified and degraded. 85% of wetlands globally have actually been lost since the 1700s. So these are really stark drivers of biodiversity decline. And what that's meant is that we're in the middle of a biodiversity crisis. We're actually in the middle of what's being called the Anthropocene extinction crisis. Uh, we see uh, unprecedented in the geological record extinction rates up to 100 to 1,000 times the background extinction rate. So since basically the dinosaurs disappeared, we've never seen an extinction event like we've seen over the last couple of hundred years. The rates of extinction are continuing to accelerate, which means that we're looking looking at over a million animals and plants globally are assessed now as being at really high risk of extinction, which is obviously incredibly bad news in its own right, but it's also, of course, incredibly bad news for us because that biodiversity provides us with our foundation for life. Without transformative change, uh, we're going to see an ongoing decline in biodiversity and we are going to fail to meet our international obligations under the Convention on Biological Diversity, including the Sustainable Development Goals and the HE targets. Uh, there's no way we can meet them by 2030 and it's only going to be with transformative change that we'll have any chance of achieving our 2050 vision for biodiversity under the Convention. Thanks, Brendan. I think that's a really important message to emphasise, that we need transformative change in so many areas with these different environmental crises, that they are all interconnected in different ways. And I might turn to that a little bit more now, Margaret, because both biodiversity and oceans conservation, the two issues we're talking about here, are important environmental issues in their own right, but have also quite strong overlaps with climate change. What are the sort of key areas where we're seeing ocean impacts and regulation of climate change overlapping? Yeah, there are many areas of overlap and it is often the interaction between legal regimes such as UNCLOS and the Paris Agreement that show innovation. For example, we see overlap in nature-based solutions which seek to address climate change but also address the biodiversity threats that Brendan has identified. You might have heard of the term blue carbon, the carbon stored in coastal ecosystems such as mangroves and seagrass. We have to keep it there. Some of the nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement, the pledges made by countries to seek to keep 
global warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees include blue carbon initiatives. There are also opportunities for countries to obtain finance from bodies such as the World Bank to preserve these areas. And this is part of a greater push to ensure the blue economy operates sustainably. Legally, states are negotiating on the protection of marine biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, known by the acronym BBNJ at the United Nations. And they're also separately negotiating to reduce subsidies that lead to overfishing. That's at the World Trade Organization. The United Nations Sustainable Development Goals identified a target of conservation of at least 10% of marine and coastal areas by 2020, although many scientists, such as Daniel Bolley in the oceans area, advocate for a much higher level where the high seas are closed off to fishing entirely. In other legal processes, human rights are increasingly important, as we see with the Torres Strait Islanders' complaint to the United Nations Human Rights Committee, which is based on the threats they're facing from rising sea level. And in another initiative to adapt to sea level rise, countries in the Pacific are seeking to have their coastal baselines recognised under UNCLOS through UN processes such as the International Law Commission. More generally, dispute settlement under UNCLOS is heralded as an important forum for a complaint on climate change, um, posing legal questions such as which states should be held responsible. And, you know, Brendan's comments about disproportionate impacts of biodiversity decline really apply here too. I think it's already clear that the threats to the oceans are felt disproportionately between countries. In our part of the world, for example, the low-lying Pacific Island states are heavily threatened by plastics pollution, which congregates in their coastal areas, as well as loss of biodiversity and, of course, sea level rise. So, Jackie, understanding how these legal processes relate to one another is an important task for any lawyer working on these issues. Brendan, from a sort of ecosystem science point of view, when you think about overlaps between the biodiversity loss and dealing with climate change, what are the kind of key areas that are of focus in the scientific area? There's sort of two key overlap areas, I guess, that I'd like to highlight. The first really is that under biodiversity initiatives, there was, I guess, a lack of recognition, a lack of focus of the important interconnections between biodiversity, society and climate. And that's, I think, led to uh, some real problems. So the first problem is that uh, you can't even begin to start to try and achieve biodiversity goals without, first of all, dealing with key uh, social issues and, and global problems like poverty. You know, there's absolutely no way that without significant alleviation of poverty in areas that are critical for the conservation of biodiversity and areas in which biodiversity are critical for people, we're going to have any chance of meeting our targets. So that's one of the innovations and one of the improvements, I think, that we're seeing now under the new global biodiversity framework that's coming up for sign-off under the October COP under the Convention of Biological Diversity, where the framework much more explicitly recognises these key connections between people, livelihood, prosperity and biodiversity conservation. And those synergies are so important. And of course, they go in both directions. We're starting, I think, now to think more cleverly about socio-ecological systems that need to be conserved rather than just trying to you know, stop species going extinct using sort of unilateral conservation actions. 
Uh, so that's one of the improvements under the, the new global biodiversity framework. The other is this uh, very strong connection between biodiversity and climate. And we're starting to see now, finally, uh, you know, joint working groups between uh, the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services and the IPCC. We saw a really important joint workshop report come out recently uh, that's identifying these crucial synergies between climate and biodiversity, the fact that under existing climate change and anything more than two degrees warming, we're going to see catastrophic biodiversity impacts that are then themselves going to significantly impact on our ability to rein in climate change. And so there's been some nice thoughtful words developed by these joint committees to help us try and tailor our targets to better recognise those synergies. So I think that's really heartening. It's already, I think, been identified under IPCC that nature-based solutions could constitute up to a third of the emissions reductions required to meet our Paris targets. What does that mean on the ground? That's, you know, biodiverse carbon sequestration projects, reef restoration projects, coastal uh, conservation projects that we measure the uh, emissions benefits from the avoided emissions benefits and the sequestration benefits. And we also very carefully measure and credit the biodiversity outcomes. So there's a bunch of initiatives there that I think we'll need to really promote through the uh, global biodiversity framework. Thanks, Brendan, and thanks, Margaret, also. I I think that you've really highlighted, to my mind, excellently how interconnected these issues are. It seems like a no-brainer that we should be having a more coordinated, joined-up approach, but it is often in this area important to remind everybody not to lose sight of these other issues in a single-minded focus. A big thank you to our guests, Margaret Young, Brendan Wintle, Stephen Minas and Alexi Trundle for joining us today and of course to our listeners for tuning in. I'm your host, Jackie Peel. And I'm Cathy Oak. You've been listening to the Climate Talks podcast produced by Greta Robinstone, Rebecca Markitala and Ariana Dickey. Thanks to Music for a Warming World for providing the show's music taken from their album Only One Way to Head. To stay up to date on the latest episodes, subscribe to Climate Talks via Spotify, Apple Podcasts or the podcast page in the show notes, where you'll also find more information about this episode and our guests. You can also follow us on Twitter at at networkedcities and hashtag Futures. Thanks for listening.